Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Robert Show. This, this is the Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. On today's show, we have the CEO and founder of 10XTS, Michael Hiles. We are going to discuss the company, team, risk, governance, regulations, and why digital securities are the future and the benefits they have. Stay until the end. Michael is going to tell us his secrets to success in the field. Hello, Michael. Thanks for coming on today. Let's start by giving us some insights into your background prior to 10XTS. Well, I'm in terms of, thank you, first of all, for inviting me onto the show. It's uh, always awesome to actually get to have a conversation with somebody that you met several years ago <laughs> and then have reconnected through mutual friends and you know other circumstances. And you know, so really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to your audience, Joe. Uh, it's really cool. But um, so in terms of like my career, I'm kind of getting old, man. You know, I was like jamming to Generation X, the band, before it was actually a demographic label. So, uh, you know, it's <laughs> like an old school dude. But uh, I started coding on mainframes in 1979. I was an eight-year-old kid. My dad worked for one of the earliest software companies in existence, Cincinnati Computing System, CENCOM is the name of it. But, um, you know, that was in an era when most human beings had never even seen a computer. But here I'm a naive kid running around thinking, you know, this is just like commonplace and blah, blah, blah. So then uh, PCs came along and, you know, I figured out I could get paid to code and pretty much set the trajectory of the rest of my life when it came to uh, what I was going to do for a career. And so uh, that's taken me through a lot of uh, technology cycles, uh, starting with mainframe to PCs and you know, PCs to, you know, modems and communication networks and the internet. And, you know, then of course, you know, from there, mobile and social media and, you know, and then of course, you know, the later generation technologies that we're all excited about these days, which of course is, you know, decentralized, you know, distributed networks and, you know, distributed data technologies. So um, it's kind of, you know, my narrative um, in terms of like some cool stuff that I've done in my career. You know, I've had some firsts. I, um, my team won a Smithsonian Laureate Award for being the very first to ever connect a uh, judicial court case management system to a browser so that you could do a case search of your local clerk of courts over the web. And when we did it, we had no idea that no one had ever done it before until the Smithsonian came and knock, knock, knock. Hey, this is pretty cool. You know, now every court clerk in existence has an online website for a case search. But um, you know, I spent a long time as an information architect in public records and, uh, you know, government systems. And so uh, uh, that, that also set the stage for another subsequent first was we deployed the first uh, biometric device on a judge's bench so a judge could e-sign a document with a thumbprint when the state of Ohio enacted their uh, e-signatures act in 2004 it opened up the opportunities to you know give judges reprieve from hand cramps of signing you know <laughs> literally bench warrants and documents every day all day long so and if you think about those parallels with some of that you know experience in my career when distributed ledger technology started to come along we start talking about immutable single sources of truth and um, you know decentralization of data and networks it was you know came down to well how do things get onto the blockchain that's still a big question right the provability of what this thing once it's on the blockchain it's provable right mathematically but it's still the the oracle function if you will and you know we saw a, an emerging opportunity and we formed a company in 2017 10xts and we've been working you know, quietly in the industry i mean people are kind of noise i've not intentionally hidden a lot of things you know if you go searching you'll find out what we've been up to but you know not been necessarily making a lot of you know, big neon sign splash because we've had specific hypotheses that we've been building towards that are now finally coming through to fruition. And especially in relation to the market and the market's acceptance of that ugly R word yeah, regulation. regulation. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. 
So what, you know, I guess, what was the initial problem that you seen in the marketplace that prompted you to start 10XDS? And is that still the problem you're solving for today? Yeah, it really is. I mean, it was the provability of the data itself, you know, when ICOs and, you know, always being an early stage tech guy, you know, deeply immersed in my regional startup ecosystem, ran the Cincinnati chapter of the Founder Institute Startup Accelerator, you know, the Silicon Valley based largest, you know, global pre-seed accelerator and probably puts more tech stars uh, candidates into tech stars than any other, you know, pre-seed program, but, um, you know, always being around early stage funding and then seeing like, whoa, there's these open source projects that are figuring out how to run a financing hustle basically. <laughs> and, you know, like they're raising all this money as a community from a crowdfunding standpoint around this technology, which is really awesome because you can see then, now there's this global paradigm that's coming together where there's cross-jurisdiction, cross-border flow of capital to fund and finance innovation and to, you know, also, you know, very demonstrative of the pent-up demand of the average person wanting to participate in early stage innovative technologies and transformations that they were passionate about and believed in, um, which that was a bellwether moment for me that says, uh-oh, the traditional, you know, private equity, venture capital community has you know a problem you know that was like the canary in the coal mine moment for me was if this is demonstrative and even though these things are securities right (laughs) but they were offered for expectation of return right if somehow or another we were able to marry the you know compliance the governance risk compliance aspect of that regulated world with the technology shift and the community focus and, you know, where will that inflection point be? And so I had some like orgasmic moments several years ago, then when some very early securities token offerings went down and like, okay, cool, this is validation, you know, like, let's keep plodding away. People were like, well, why didn't you get in the space? I said, well, you know, quite frankly, there were an awful lot of, you know, called progressive form-based token generator software tool companies that could create an ERC-20 or variant token for you by selecting some fields. You know, we call those code generators in technology mm-hmm. land. They've been around for a long time, right? So you set some switches and some drop downs and click some radio dial buttons and hit generate smart contract, generate token, and boom, out the other end comes a Solidity script that you go and run on the Ethereum network that creates this, you know, token for you, right? Still didn't necessarily complete the story. And that's what we were focused on was the later stage generation of okay, I've got an Aspen digital token or whatever. At some point in time, these are going to list and trade on multiple trading exchanges, much like Bitcoin listed on multiple, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges. It's all driven by the same technology entity. But there's got to be some evidence, if for no other reason, somebody puts out a security that technology notwithstanding is a crappy deal on paper, and I'm an investor and I'm mad and I file a lawsuit against the offering sponsor or whatever because it, you know, it was a garbage deal or whatever, right? Shareholder lawsuits happen irrespective of blockchain, right? Now, how do I obtain the evidentiary recordation that I need to go into an e-discovery, pre-trial discovery? Because now I've got a financial case, a matter, fraud, whatever on my hands. How do, how do I obtain all of those metadata elements and records necessary to prove that when you say, well, this hash value, this token on this distributed network represents a share of this company. And I always said, okay, cool, prove it. Well, it's in the contracts. Cool. Where are the contracts? Oh, they're at the law firm in their document yeah. management system. So that means I have to you know, abandon the notion of fully automated 
trust technology and go back to a human powered process for the verification and the authentication of the claim that you're making at this sort of, you know, hash cryptographic level. To prove that I've got to go, you know, get the attorney to send me stuff that's in his Outlook inbox, right? Or whatever, you know, wherever they're storing these things. <laughs> it's not a very efficient process. So that's really what we set about to, to, to solve as knowing that the market would move towards a later understanding of the deeper concepts of governance, risk compliance, information, you know, records management. These are all formal competencies. They've existed for a long time, right? I didn't invent GRC. Kind of came about when Sarbanes-Oxley was real, right? And became a thing. But how do I make all of my governance provable? So I'm, I wander around in the industry asking questions like, hey, cool, I love the fact that you have issued or want to issue a digital securities offering. Question, do you have a governance risk compliance policy at the board level that articulates what your you know, policies are so that in the event of a matter or an action, your directors and officers insurance will pay off in the event of a court claim against the board? No. Uh, I bet your token generator solutions provider didn't address <laughs> that topic with you. Have your counsel call me. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that's how we got into the space, and I know that covered a lot of ground real fast. But you know, that's that that's where we've been focusing on towards our hypothesis. Still the same, you know. How do we make hash values equally immutably provable as the hash value itself? All right. So what is I guess I mean, how many people you say we? You know, how many people are on the team that are kind of executing this plan? And you know, how did you find all those players? Um, so we've kept the team lean and mean, you know, we've, we're venture backed so venture funded, but we've not raised any serious institutional money to date, um, because it was such an R and D focused, you know, effort so far out from the convergence of the market. So we have about 10 full time on the core software company team. And then of course the bank, wink, wink, we'll talk about that you know, yeah. they have a completely. They have a separate team. Yeah, that's an independent sister company that, you know, came about as a part of this process. All right. And I guess, you know, uh, Anything else you'd like to add to what uh, 10XTS is, is, is trying to accomplish or? Um, well, I mean, we want to create an impact on society because we think more efficient capital markets is ultimately what's going to drive capital efficiency and cost down, you know, as, as part of market settlements. And so I look at the, this compression opportunity for costing that's going to just simply improve capital efficiency across the board on a global basis. There's no reason for transactions to cost as much as they do, especially in private equities. And, you know, there's going to be, a, you know, definitely a, an ensuing bloodbath in service provider land um, for these types of capital markets. But then also, you know, it's an interesting quandary because we're very much about economic inclusion and restoring wealth, creating opportunities to Main Street, which I think was a big part of the vision of the democratization of capital of the traditional blockchain space, the non-securities, you know, purely technology-driven space. And I think that that is a worthwhile effort. You know, I think that that is, a, you know, very much a, a needed discussion, how that gets there, you know, and then, you know, will the masses, you know, John Smith and John, John and Jane Smith, will they actually engage in these wealth creating opportunities as market, <laughs> you know, micro wealth generating market participants, you know, you know, there's a lot of debate about, well, you can have all the economic inclusion in the world, but the stark reality is, is, you know, these people are not going to access this you know, system over here. So, that problem, I, I, that, that I, I, hypothesis is above my pay grade, by the way. I'm not a sociologist by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, I think a lot of them won't access it unless it's through intermediaries, right? That obviously, Agreed. you know, similar to today's structure that they, they put in their capital with some trusted, you know, fiduciary or whatever it may be that's investing in the asset class. Because frankly, I just don't think that everybody wants to and or has the time and desire to learn about all these different asset classes and manage their own capital, right? So when it comes to, you know, improving governance and risk, there are some recent ransomware attacks 
And you know, how can blockchain-based solutions help? Well, that's a you know, from a technical standpoint, that's you know, really a roll the hand grenade across the floor kind of a question because <laughs> it's going to lead us down a lot of rabbit holes. We could probably talk for an entire podcast series about that particular problem. Ideally, because there's a single source of truth that is auditable, independent of the institution, that that allows for the opportunity for very early detection if there's an anomaly in a data set, right? We've seen instances where highly centralized information systems went um, compromised yet unreported because of the internal organization's lack of preparedness or willingness to necessarily, you know, get on the stick from a disclosure standpoint. And, you know, then of course compounded into other, you know, breach. And, and I'm talking non-blockchain breaches of data, you know, as I understand it, uh, Poly Network got slammed this morning for 600 million. Oh, that was yeah. Poly with the 600? Yeah, it was was Poly, it? yeah, Poly Network was 600 million as the current, I think it's going to be the largest, you know, Paul in scam city history. So, you know, it is, you know, these things happen, right? It's a big one. <laughs> 600 million is a lot. It's, it's, it's the bounty. It's the bounty. It's the community's bounty for finding out bugs in these, in these systems, right? <laughs> yeah. What's interesting though is, you know, I'm, you know, it's you put two and two together. I'm easily identifiable, at least a little L libertarian type, you know, Austrian economics. And you can't be attracted to the space, at least philosophically, without having at least some facet of that philosophical um, bone in your body somewhere. But it's always interesting to me to engage in the crypto community, which of course vary, you know, there's no one monolithic crypto community. It's like politics, you know, there's varying degrees of blockchain maximalism to, you know, whatever. But um, when these things happen, for me, it's always a mental countdown to the first, you know, public outcry demands for criminal action. Somebody ought to do something. It's like, wait, you're working fervently to build a system independent of jurisdictional authority. <laughs> and then the very first place you want to run into when there's a fraud or a hack or something is the freaking police station. And, you know, like, hey, help me, you know, forgive me if, you know, I'm sort of snickering at the irony here. I'm sorry about your loss, but, you know, this is, <laughs> this is not alignment. So... So I don't know if I answered the question actually about what makes it more um, secure. I mean, obviously, various forms of cryptographic decentralization allow multiple copies of the data to be, you know, reconciled on a near real-time basis. And um, you know, do you believe in one form of encryption over another? Do you believe in one form of governance over another from a chain? You know, they all have pros and cons. You know, there's this is where we get into the 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 amazing opportunity of cryptocurrency is there's no one size fits all, right? I mean, from a technology standpoint, it's, you know, we're, we're actually fairly blockchain agnostic in our products and solutions as a company. You know, we, we don't really care what your public chain of record is because we're the metadata, we're the sort of the side chain, you know, Oracle layer of, you know, all of the, the provable metadata that makes this transaction actually mean something to human beings, particularly judges and juries and lawyers, but, you know, <laughs> anyone who goes looking that's authorized, right? Well, let's go, let's, let's try to go into a little bit of detail on that and just kind of, for the listeners so they can have a better understanding of kind of what role you play in the process and maybe take some type of example of uh, tokenizing some piece of real estate or something and kind of give us the start to finish. Sure. Yeah. So I want to make it clear. We're not, we're a governance risk and compliance solutions company first and foremost. Now that manifests itself as tokenization in how we do business because once the attorneys listen to our approach and what we're doing with a client that's contemplating a, a uh, you know a securities offering that is designated by a 
token on a blockchain, which is really what we're talking about when we say token offering, right? Um, you know, or uh, tokenization. You're tokenizing an asset, but ostensibly it's through a special purpose vehicle or some corporate entity or some instrument that would be you know, very much denoted as a security under really any jurisdictional view of what constitutes a security. How we track and manage the ownership and possession of that security is kind of, you know, really immaterial. Um, you know, people are really hung up on, oh my God, we got to, you know, custody tokens. I got hit up, you know, this past week because of all the infrastructure bill, stakeholders, you know, partners like, oh, what's this going to do to you guys? And I, nothing. We're freaking, we're the scribes, we're the records management company, you know? So we're, we're the solution that the broker hires, right? You know, uses. You know, what, what the piece of paper hanging on the wall says, because the government, you know, gave you the license to do whatever, you know, that's a material. You could you know, manage all this data with a three ring binder. Case in point, there are still transfer agents in the securities industry that are, you know, the ultimate say so in a post trade settlement process that literally run their back office on three ring binders of printouts of handwritten shareholder ownership as a cap table. Right. The SEC doesn't specify, well, you must use this form. You have to use an online spreadsheet like Carta, which is for me, you know, I look at Carta and some of these cap table management companies like, well, gosh, that's just like a fancy Google sheet, ain't it? You know, <laughs> I mean, heck. <laughs> or charge you extra money for the macros and the formulas that it contains. But in the end, it's just a spreadsheet, <laughs> whatever. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of how we tokenize things, the token becomes a hash value equivalent of the claim that this token object is indeed a stake or an ownership in a securities entity. How do we prove those things? Well, all of the shareholder subscription agreements, the public, you know, you know the private placement memorandum, the, you know, um, you know, shareholder, you know, accreditation verification questionnaires, you know, all of the things that go into and constitute the body of evidence, you know, and really it's an iterative body. It's never, you know, one event and then somehow or another that changes. There's this continued iterative body of evidence around the issuance, you know, really the life cycle of a security, you know, whether it's issuant, you know, the, the generation, you know, call it the genesis event that I go pay a lawyer to, you know, create an entity. And, you know, that's where the conceptual notion of security begins. And then through issuance where I'm handing that out, Joe gets to subscribe in this many shares and blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, the, now we trade these things and we settle these things and then we report on these things. There's a continuum of the life cycle of a security independent of whether it's a token or whether it's, you know, printed certificate right so you know for us it's just a function of correlating all of that boring records management stuff all of those artifacts but then we also we we also write to the ledger an immutable event logging around permissioning and governance so if you joe gets granted permission from a fund manager to go and look at this set of records because you're a limited partner or whatever the fact that you've were granted that permission that event has mutably logged to the chain. When you go and look at a document and retrieve a particular document that you've been given permission to, I know literally precisely to the second when Joe Robert went and looked at that document. Right? Okay. So now the evidencing and the, you know, back to the governance and the risk and compliance from a, you know, particularly a regulatory standpoint, Hey, SEC, you want to see like literally everything chain of custody of information and data and transaction click one button pretrial discovery is no longer uh, you know millions of dollars of proposition in the event of a security fraud case or whatever right it's you've eliminated what is a significant cost in litigation pretrial discovery 
So Ryan, can you, can you break down one example of a, a client that you currently have or had in the past and, and what, you know, what role you did for them? Sure. Um, so we work with funds, uh, private equity funds. We work with corporate issuances. Um, and then we have done a fair amount in, you know, from a fund standpoint in the real estate space. So each of them are somewhat nuanced. Um, corporate issuances have taken on five or six offerings, as well as, you know, we've got some reggae offerings. Reggae Plus is sort of taken on a, a life as a potential avenue towards um, digitized securities. And so literally we onboard into our platform, the record, the body of evidence, the records, right? All of the corporate, the corporate records, the, the executed shareholder agreements, it comes down to the provability of a document. And that metadata gets assembled in the Oracle sidechain layer. And then when that entity is ready to generate a public chain designated token, whether that's an Ethereum 1450 or 721. And, you know, once again, it doesn't really matter to us as long as we have the ability to write additional data to the transaction, assuming that the the protocol has some capacity to, you know, incorporate a, a, you know, hash value that becomes an index key. It unlocks the side chain mechanism of all that body of evidence, whether you're uh, a shareholder, you know, using a shareholder uh, portal, which we we build, we we build shareholder management portals. Not because I'm really hung up and want to be in the shareport, you know, shareholder management business. Because there's lots of great companies with lots of great platforms out there. It just so happens that that's a really low hanging fruit, easy way for us to demonstrate really the underlying technology of, well, I'm raising a new fund, I'm onboarding 30, you know, new limited partners. Can this become a form of deal room for me? Right? Does this become a form of you know, really the ownership of the data. And we start talking about master data management, which is a category below in the IT space and enterprise. MDM is subordinate to, you know, the governance risk compliance layer, just that's more of a board and company policy, you know, know, procedures manuals with, you know, 1.1.2, 1.1.3. In the event that this happens, the officer will do this, et cetera, et cetera. Master data management falls under that. And that's basically where the IT department, you know, the, the CIO is responsible for ensuring the integrity and ownership of an organization's complete volume of data. We went through this back in the mer- the migration from enterprise when companies owned all their iron and had their own data centers internally and you know lots of sysadmins running around with you know RJ45 switch panels in the you know, computer room and then all of a sudden the idea was well maybe we could just rent someone else's computer and move all that shit out and you know load our files and information into this magical thing called the cloud well, that's cool who owns the data so we went through this whole shift in the industry where we're migrating from on-premise to you know cloud data. How do companies ensure the management and control and the ownership of their actual data? Now, what's interesting in the capital market space is, is everybody's got a portal, right? If I want to go raise money as a real estate investor on or a real estate offering sponsor on, say, CrowdStreet, for example, yeah. and I'm not using, you know, I'm not necessarily picking on them. They're all, you know, everyone's a, you know, equal offender in this particular space. <laughs> Everybody wants to own and control the data to the point of calling it, well, these are our investors, you know, this yeah. is our mar- marketplace, right? What's well, the problem with marketplaces is they can't, you know, it's hard to serve two masters, the buy side and the sell side of the market, both, right? So they're saying, well, these are our investors. We've worked really hard to you know, build this marketing database. And that's what allows you as a sponsor to come in and raise your money, you know, raise your $15 million for your multifamily or whatever. You know, in, in the end, it comes down to who owns and controls the data. Well, to the unawares, real estate guy who's just trying to raise money and close his deal and get his project done, right? The distinctions and the complexities in the bowels of the capital markets ecosystem, they don't know things like, well, there's this form of intermediary called a transfer agent that is authorized under federal law that basically is required by law to 
get from a exchange or a broker dealer or a trading venue, any and all settlement data, because they are, of course, the keeper of the cap table. A transaction in securities did not occur until, as I call it, the transfer agents, the proverbial fat lady singing. It's over at that point. I don't care you know, if the bank says this or the broker says this until that transfer agent says, boom, it's on the book as the official record, the trade is not done. What offering sponsors don't realize is they literally, under the law, can become their own TA1 filed transfer agent. So I can have, you know, 10XTS and then spin up an LLC called 10XTS Investor Services, much like other corporations that are out there acting as their own transfer agent, and then be mandated to receive from any and all third-party venues that shareholder and that trade settlement data across any issuance portal, any secondary marketplace, et cetera. Our approach has been to be very offering sponsor focused. It's our job to be the advocate for the ownership of any offering sponsors data as they wander out into this, you know, especially uncharted territory of, you know, digital secondary capital markets, you know, the T-Zeros, the, you know, then Toros. And I'm not, once again, this is, I'm not picking on anybody, but what I can tell you is, is that because a lot of these companies were born out of traditional Wall Street, even though they have better, more efficient technology, their business practices haven't necessarily also equally evolved to incorporate the culture and the philosophy of what decentralized data actually means. Therefore, it's just a more efficient trading venue. doesn't mean that you're leveraging decentralized technology, you know, decentralization of capital markets. So I look at it as we're in a way the anti-Bloomberg. We put the offering sponsor into the data business, owning and controlling and managing all of their own data so that now third-party, you know, rent seekers can't go to all these other places and aggregate these this data and then sell it back to you when it was your data to begin with, right? Sorry, Michael, I don't mean to pick some, you're really rich and, you know, you could squash me like, but, you know, what's the point of decentralized technology if you're going to behave in a centralized way, I guess? So how do you, what do you, I guess a few things. I mean, you know, you mentioned transfer agents and several different things that require licenses and democratizing, you know, investing and, you know, where are we ultimately going and, and what's going to stand in the way to democratize investing, but, you know, have the right compliance and licensing in place? Well, when you look at the opportunity in capital markets, we have very inefficient, you know, even at the macro level, we have very inefficient capital markets. Um, you know, why do we still have T plus two days settlement from a trade to the time something settles? Well, what people don't realize is in particular in the private equity markets, you know, it's T plus three, T plus five, because for a private equity transaction, you got to get in your car and drive down to the bank branch and go see the you know local bank officer who gets out a medallion signature guarantee stamp, the big, huge neon <laughs> ink chunk square and a chunk chunk. And they sign it and, you know, they affirm that Joe Robert appeared before me. He has the legal right to dispose of these assets in this transaction manner. Please accept my, you know, signature as a guarantee of his identity of who he is and his authenticity. And then you go mail that off to the transfer agent <laughs> or, you know, somewhere, right? So, you know, the, the, the fact that you have that not only human powered process, but then, you know, I got to get in a car and I got to like fight traffic and, you know, like go into a physical bank branch to just simply get an authentication guarantee seems kind of stupid to me, but what do I know? But this is the, you know, once again, nuances of the opportunities to really change how capital markets operate. The other benefit is really, you know, I can list a security on multiple liquidity pools or trading venues. That's something that's not even being contemplated right now because no actual security token, I hate the phrase, but you know, that's what the, yeah. at least the crypto industry knows securities as in blockchain world. I just call them digital securities, but you know, whatever. But in the STO land, no 
actual single issuance is trading on more than a single trading venue. Some of that is because it cuts back to what I was talking about, the you know legacy behaviors of Wall Street with things like exclusive terms of listing and like, what? <laughs> Those <laughs> kinds of things, right? But eventually the idea is there's going to be a, the same security will trade on multiple trading venues, which now creates all sorts of other opportunities around arbitrage or best order execution, smart order routing. And you get into really some high frequency trading complexities as the market will mature to now, you know, actually be a true marketplace for, you know, what is now you know, still a highly liquid form of asset. Now, is that because the, because uh, is that boiled down to licensing and compliance right now? And that's why these are still all being centralized on all these new startups, like these real estate STO offerings. I mean, I, I, you know, like you said, when we first started talking about STOs, it was, hey, it could be freely traded, <laughs> mm. right? Freely traded, I think was the word, something like that. And now it's like, uh, you see a few of these real estate groups that are all, you know, tokenizing some type of the real estate stack, but they're only offering those tokens in their centralized website portal login. Yep. And uh, it's not the vision that we had. Now, the question, I guess, is, is it, are they taking the steps right now to get to a point where the vision would like to be? Um, that's an interesting question. At least in my observation, no. Once again, everybody has a portal. They want you to use their portal because they know that your port, their portal is the path to data nirvana and riches as an interloper rent-seeking you know, data landlord. And so whenever I encounter those discussions, and I have, once again, not going to name names in the industry, but there's a fair amount of prevalence. You know, It's interesting because you've observed that as well, and so you, you've seen this. I ask the simple question, does this mean that if I buy a security through your offering on your portal, that you're guaranteeing me liquidity because obviously I don't have any opportunity to move my asset to some other venue for trading? You know, of course, it's dead silence. You know, like they don't have an answer to that. Well, no, we're not going to guarantee liquidity. We're going to hire market makers that'll guarantee the liquidity. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, clearly you don't understand secondary markets because market makers can only actually operate when they have more than one liquidity pool that they can arbitrage and trade between. So, I, you know, this is like a pig and a poke, guys. Come on. Well, let's hit that. Let's hit that real quick because that's the question. The last three years, I think I've asked everybody is like, because I guess when you ask the whole point of creating a, a project or a company in the space is to solve a problem. And, you know, when, when we come to tokenizing real estate, one of the first problems everyone goes, we need liquidity. Right. And I go, okay. So after a year or whatever the, the rule is, you know, you could freely trade it, uh, you know, who's buying it, you know, how is sure. the liquidity? And, you know, if it's such a small asset, how is that going to be identifiable? Like, you know, and if it's centralized in one login, you know, what are the options? How's it going to be liquidity? And it's kind of no answer. So my question to you is, what do you actually see? What do you? What is the problem you see that tokenizing these equity stacks is actually solving? Um, you're correct in that there is a future tense when it comes to this. You know, I think you know, God love the the STO market kids. You know, they're doing a great job. Kyle Somlin, I think, and um, Herwig, uh, his his buddy. Um, you know, they're real passionate about this segment of the market, and so they're tracking. You know, and if their numbers are to be believed, which I have no reason to doubt the veracity, authenticity of their calculations, but we're at a, approximately a billion dollars in assets that are actively traded in the current secondary market. That's not, I mean, that's literally nothing. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that could be one kidding? company, right? Could, I mean, I have 1.3 billion in live fire projects under current development with another 6 billion in my sales pipe right now. And that's just me. And there's of course other people in the space coming at it from their own way and doing it, you know, progressive form token generator method or whatever they're doing, yeah. right? Um, I'd happy, be happy to talk to their compliance officers, by the way. If anybody needs to get a hold of me, I can show you where the dirt and the shorts are at. But uh, <laughs> um, in terms of like the emergence of that market, it's going to take a sustained, continued effort. But already, I think that 
people get it. You know, now the broker dealer network, broker dealer market's waking up to it. And that's a big one. I think if you can find over the next 24 months, say a few dozen, you know, a handful of independent broker dealers that get it and need to, you know, really accelerate their involvement in the digital securities business and they get it and they understand it, you'll start to see that change rapidly. And if you look at the numbers, you know, already, if, you know, once again, STO market, if their numbers are to be understood and believed, you know, we started with, a, you know, tens of millions of dollars of assets in the securities space at the beginning of 2020. And we closed out the calendar year with like 350 billion or something approximate like that. And now, you know, by third quarter this year, we're already at, you know, a billion. So the acceleration on, on the, 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 the curve is certainly demonstrative. And I have no reason to believe that that'll slow down. At all, knowing that there are applications for new broker dealers based purely on, you know, uh, digital securities, new ATSs are coming online. You know, there's, you can make money as an intermediary in the space again, you know, basically. Do you ever see, I mean, if we think, you know, obviously to the thesis or, uh, you know, of, of what we like of democratizing, you know, the goal is really to be able to, or at least what people in the crypto space is, they would like to be able to buy assets in a non-KYC fashion or not have to go through accreditation. Do we ever see that even possible with security tokens? Nope. They're securities. Yep. It's like saying, can I go to the vending machine in the quick mart and, you know, buy some AAPL out of the, you know, the, the Apple, you know, the Apple ATM? No, quite frankly, no. Um, I, I don't ever see securities laws ever because, you know, just in general, it's so intertwined from traditional markets into traditional banking and governance of the currency markets and the currency models. I don't think you're ever going to get past that if you are going to organize as a legally recognized form of business entity under any jurisdiction, you immediately will be required to you know, conform to that existing ecosystem. I, mean, I can't say never, but it's not going to yeah. necessarily be in my current generational view, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe when the the 15 year olds who have never known life before Bitcoin grow up and, you know, eventually they're like voting and running for office. And, you know, I can't speak to what the world looks like in, you know, 2060, you know, but it's certainly, I don't see that in the next 10 years. All right. And I think you guys, uh, I've seen something about X Dex, right? Yeah. That's, that's our flagship product. That's, that's the Oracle, you know, that's the, the governance comp- uh, risk and compliance layer uh, platform. Does that stand for anything? X Dex or extended index. Respect to the nerdy library sciences information architecture background that, uh, yeah, but, you know, interestingly, it also has DEX, which a lot of people associate means decentralized exchange. (laughs) And I wouldn't necessarily, um, as part of our integration with third-party trading venues, the fact that we're collecting settled orders into a data model versus actually having deep in the bowels of the system, the capability to match orders on the buy side, the sell side. I would not deny that that code functionality uh, exists at present. We're just simply waiting for the right partnerships and opportunities to deploy that level of implementation on the trade side through, you know, market channel partners, licensed ATSs, licensed brokers, et cetera. And, and kind of going back to what we were just discussing, some of your clients being funds, are you seeing the benefits of the actual tokenization of these funds and if it's really needed at this point? Yeah, I mean, there's a you know certain benefit to just getting my crap organized as a small fund in particular. You know, once again, it's managing crap out of your Outlook inbox and you know various spreadsheets or whatever. You know, hopefully you got a sophisticated spreadsheet model that you can drop in your monthly up or down or your quarterly up or down for your you know limited partnership uh, statements reports. Um, but in general, it's forcing 
what's an interesting an interesting exercise that we went through was you know tokenization works really well when you have a very well-defined unit of account i have a share right but in the legacy world of capital markets there are a lot of just cash-based limited partnership accounts and you have a basis in that you have a pro rata you know ownership in that pie but there's not necessarily a quote-unquote unit it's just based on dollars you know like i threw in at 20,000 bucks and now my current you know based on the performance of the fund you know, that's grown to you know 180,000 or whatever right there's no like well you've done that through these unit layers so tokenization works extremely well for new issuances because i can i can contemplate into the front end of all my legal on my issuance and my subscription docs and everything, the legal description of the fund is issuing so many units and blah, 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 and describing what that looks like in the operating agreements, et cetera. But how do you onboard and ingest into this digital world, the world of legacy limited partnerships and just purely cash-based accounts? Aha, it's a little bit of a problem when you're dealing primarily in a unit-based ledger methodology. So, We've worked to kind of do some cool things inside of that that you know we think is going to really accelerate once the the steam starts rolling for the promise of the secondary markets and the you know promise of that post trade market infrastructure that's emerging that um, it'll be a, a great path to ingest legacy funds that aren't necessarily unit based um, and pull them dragging and screaming into the you know 21st century. So um, so yeah, um, as far as like the immediate benefit. There's a certain sachet. You're going to appeal to a certain amount of you know certain audience, which is massive at this point, right? The fact that you are progressive as a company and as a management team to position your capitalization formation around a digital chassis um, that becomes fairly noteworthy. Um, does that make a difference on your initial issuance? I don't know because you know like it's what I tell people all the time. You know the coolest technology in the world is not going to polish your turd of a deal. So <laughs> they don't work on paper. <laughs> you know, like, there's got to be a good deal underneath it somewhere, right? So. I'd rather I'd rather invest with the guy with paper and pencil that makes a profit than the guy who has fancy software that makes yeah. a loss, right? <laughs> it's all about return here, guys. Don't get lost in the real the real vision. So you know, in terms of the time scale for there to really come online and be a thriving secondary market, um, you know, we're still a little bit away, but there's a lot of money pouring into the infrastructure development of the space. You know, you look at like the new entrance into the ATS markets, you know, you got the, you know, the INXs and the, um, you know, the Oasis Pro Markets, Pat Lavacchia and his group, you know, great folks, you know, great guys that, you know, actually have great attitudes about, you know, the tech and those guys are awesome to work with. But, um, you know, there's, it's coming, right? It's very visibly um, apparent, you know, I liken my job right now, my role of, you know, we were working towards this point, you know, what they say, the old parable about faith is starting on the staircase when you can't necessarily see the top. And um, so I'm like staring offshore to the horizon and seeing the tidal wave, you know, growing and growing and growing. And I feel the spray hitting my face and it's, you know, it's coming. It's not here yet, but it's going to hit. And that's why it's even interesting because people ask, well, don't you guys compete against so-and-so or, you know, this company? You got competition. I'm like, dude, if you're thinking about competition right now <laughs> and the scale and scope of the global marketplace for all of the potential assets and capital that's going to migrate to a digital chassis, you're, you are definitely misguided in your concerns from a business development standpoint. Instead of worrying about whose competitive matrix is this and, oh, I got these, you know, this press release and blah, blah, blah. That's why we're, we're, we're out there killing it, right? You don't see very many press releases about 
the clients that were signing on. And, oh my gosh, you know, you know why? Because of our GRC focused approach. And I didn't go for the smash and grab on the front end with all the BS of the glitz and glamour, the neon sign ICO and token, you know, technology driven marketplace. I went after the boring conversation that makes the attorneys comfortable. Therefore, we get almost exclusively all of our clients, our recommendations from very substantial law firms. That's good. That's something I've been talking to uh, one of my team members that, uh, you know, his, you know, he's more on that decentralized side. And I'm like, look, you know, with all these protocols and so forth and, and the regulations, I was like, the biggest winners will be ones that get the licenses. You know what I mean? Like, like especially if, if you're dealing with anything with a U.S. person, people, anything, <laughs> anything related to having some type of U.S. person, I was like, right. the winners or protocols or something that can get creative and figure out how to piggy bank and get some type of licensing in place, whether right. it's under an umbrella or whatever that may be, uh, and a way to KYC, uh, you know, those type of clients under the regulatory bodies uh, will be will be winners. That's not what people want to hear, but. <laughs> when you're dealing with securities, and that's what I remind you, don't worry about the technology. We're yeah. just like the Keebler L's down, down in the stump, you know, with our cool toys. But, you know, in the end, they're securities. And so, you know, the goal for anybody should to not have the U.S. Marshals pound on their door at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning and, you know, hopefully not shoot your dog, but, you know, like, you know, these are the things that obviously enforcement happens, you know, SEC, the regulatory agencies, if you start to look at their budgets, they're staffing up for enforcement in a big way across the board. We have a, you know, an administration that's trying to expand, you know, I'm not going to get into the politics of whether I agree with that or not, but there's, you know, once again, a budgetary expansion underway, everybody's scrambling for ways to pay for all this, you know, social, whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're in an environment where enforcement of taxes, security, you know, literally it's all going to come down to revenue collection from a government standpoint. And, you know, it'll be U.S. Marshals show up at your door at 4 a.m., not a GitHub repository of code because the law is law, code is not law. Right? <laughs> I agree. I agree. So, I mean, you know, so maintaining regulations and compliance, uh, you know, I know you guys also have some type of relationship with Commercium Bank, right? Yeah. So uh, that's been a really eye-opening experience. You know, there's, uh, we've, we've got a, you know, that was my goal when I started 10XTS was let's go recruit an A-list, you know, really hitter team, not from the crypto space, mind you, necessarily. Um, so we put together and assembled a pretty awesome team over the past several years. Last year, when we were finally ready to move out of pilot and kind of go to market with our platform product suite that um, COVID hits, right? Well, what kind of crazy idiot takes a market you know, a product to market, like at the beginning of a pandemic, yeah. right? So, well, this is changing how we approach things. And so as we got into it, um, my colleague, I had brought on former um, Ohio House of Representatives, a um, couple of terms in the House and served as the chair of the, uh, you know, the Financial Institutions Committee on the ha- for the Ohio House, uh, Jonathan Deaver, you know, Jonathan's an attorney and, um, you know, spent time in the regulatory seat as the you know, state regulator on the House side. House side. Brought him in um, and we started to really talk about the future of the market. I was really interested in the public affairs side of it. Where's the legislation going? This guy's, you know, an A-lister and can really, you know, move us into D.C. heavily, um, you know, really leverage those networks. But um, then when Wyoming announced that they had, um, you know, signed the bill into law and that um, they were open for applications, we started talking about it back in 2018. You know, I'm telling all my team, you know, some of my initial investors and my advisors, we just need to go buy a bank. Let's cut yeah. to the chase. Let's, let's just go buy a bank. Of course, everybody's like, oh, no, we can't buy a bank because, number one, the liability that you're inheriting. And number two, all the regulatory compliance. And I'm like, regulatory compliance? 
that's what we do <laughs> exactly but the law wasn't quite there yet well then when the so we were in the middle of negotiation of acquisition of an existing broker dealer last you know very early spring and um it kind of you know just hit us that we need to revisit that conversation around a bank and so we made the decision internally let's separate teams because a bank is obviously it's you know an independent institution the expectation from the government and the division is to you know kind of have an independent board and there's very specific rules around voting control and what you can do as a you know an interlocked company because it's very highly um, irregular that a bank application would be presented as a product of what initially started as a software company a software startup usually it's a bunch of you know rich you know like ivy league you're sitting around you know at the yacht club and hey let's go start a bank and then yeah. let's go you know hire some techies to come in and build stuff um so it was a very interesting process uh to work with the state of wyoming very cool i mean the most progressive regulators i have ever experienced talked to in my life um and so we started the process of submitting our application last year um we put in our application got it in just prior to uh, chris land was the um, counsel for the division of wyoming's you know, you know wyoming division of banking and he since left um he left at the end of the year to become the uh council and liaison for uh senator cynthia lummis's office to the treasury um so he's still around and involved but um you know really working with the division of banking our, our charter application was submitted um we were approved um right around just after the first of the year how long did that process take uh well the application ended up being about i don't know i think it's probably 900 pages so it took us a better part of a year to write it because you know we articulated literally every workflow process swim lane you know and i went on a rating spree i went and rated um hsbc of course you know it's been no secret that hsbc us has kind of had some trouble so i went you know had some personal relationships in chicago and i went on a bit of a rating spree and as part of my assemblage of a team and uh we ended up working with some really top tier global hsbc talent that had recently retired and has opened banks in 20 jurisdictions globally as part of their tenure with hsbc and so we we put together a really compelling application um and then you know our application was approved but due to the you know statutory rule process of how they schedule hearings and they only meet you know once a month as a commission <laughs> and all those things we had the um the the hearing was june 29th and so the bank team and you know the management team and the board went to cheyenne it was a, you know, basically a court hearing defend their thesis and you know present to the bank board and um we just obtained our approval so it's even taken you know about six weeks to get our approval but uh, by unanimous vote uh, we were approved by the state of wyoming as the fourth spdi i say we because you know i take a lot of pride and ownership in having been you know sort of the catalyst of the process but make no mistake under you know 56 bank holding act and control statutes and all that we're but yet one of many players involved in in the bank so it's very eye-opening um the interesting part of the process was traditionally the division will get an application and then they'll you know come and read it and redline it and debate you with things and you know about halfway through the process i'm like guys you're asking us a lot of questions that we don't have answers to and really it comes down to you as the regulators how are you going to like grade the bank how are you going to examine the bank you know what do you want you know this has never been done before so you know and, and so our thesis actually is very unique. Um, we are focused on a couple of key things, obviously providing cash accounts to crypto related parties under proper KYC AML, but there is a dearth of banking options in the space. If you've attempted to open a bank account for your very basic uh, GPLP crypto fund, even, you know, you know, don't even have crypto. You know, I feel bad for like the cryptography guys that actually do like crypto software services, because if you try to open a bank account with crypto in your name, the AML department's going to be like, nah, baby, nah. So um, 
you know, we've, we've certainly had our rounds in that, that arena. Um, so cash accounts, payment rails, um, but then, you know, really ostensibly custody, but custody specifically for digital securities with a very narrow focus and bias around solving that problem. And that, and that custody is for clients, correct? Yeah, for, or is that for the yeah. company's balance sheet? No, that would be custody for the clients, the investors, anybody owning a, you know, they are basically the custodian for, you know, their clients that would want to issue securities tokens specifically. Um, they are highly specialized in that particular space with an eye towards this secondary market, capital markets, all of this infrastructure. So it's really interesting when you look at the four SPDIs that are in, you know, now in play in Wyoming, we all have very different hypotheses around the same form of banking charter. And I think it speaks to the wisdom of the, you know, the division out there and the, you know, the folks in Wyoming um, that, you know, two, three years ago took a very progressive approach to learning the technology and deliberating and defining, you know, what is a digital asset, right? How do you codify that into law? And then how do we subsequently pass you know, banking regs around this? And then, you know, even further, they've pushed the window with like the DAO, you know, distributed autonomous organization, you know, entity form, you know, and really experimenting with a lot of LLC and entity law in that regard. So, um, you know, kudos to but that's also the kind of thing you get done when you only have 500,000 people in the whole state. To yeah. <laughs> it's like the size of Poughkeepsie. <laughs> less, less government can get more things done. That's what we're learning, right? Imagine that. So, but yeah, so uh, Commercium is, uh, you know, once again, it's an independent, uh, you know, completely independent company has its own management team, independent board cap table. Um, but um, we're really excited because, you know, this represents a great opportunity for f- folks that we deal with on the GRC side, especially say, Hey, if you guys, chosen a custody provider, you know, who you're working with on a banking or a custody basis that, uh, you know, more often than not, they might have talked to one or two or, you know, knew of a bank, but have not actually, you know, gone to the extent of solving that problem. And so we were in a position to, you know, really direct, you know, um, the banking services uh, to, a, you know, a sister partner company. Is so I'm really excited. Is there any other benefits that, you know, of setting up SPDI that, you know, the listeners can be aware of just kind of what are some other things you can do with that license, maybe? Um, stable coins, and it's, you know, especially, you know, once again, there's a lot of controversy about what's going to happen in the stable coin space. In fact, you know, Jeremy Lair and, you know, now Circle is claiming that yep. they want to pursue, a, you know, a federal OCC charter. And, you know, God knows they've got enough assets under management already in the space. And just to, you know, hey, let's wipe the slate clean for anything that we might have done. You know, let's just <laughs> take any fines, pay them and move, move to the next step, move right? forward, right. So, um, <laughs> But it's real interesting when you look at, um, you know, the the central bank digital currency. Maybe, maybe not. You know, I think it's still an evolutionary discussion. But without question, the private sector is already solving the problem in the form of, you know, you know, in, in the wildcatter days of the old Wild West banking, it was you know bank script, right? I mean, it's like I get this piece of paper and I can go down to the bank and exchange it for a nugget of gold or whatever out of the bank, and that's in a digital form tantamount to what we're doing now. I deposit, you know a thousand dollars into the bank account and they give me a thousand dollars worth of denominated bank script tokens that may be used in you know these other environments well i mean it seems like you've done quite a bit over the last few years right i yep. mean between 10 xts the bank and everything i mean uh, you know not too many people in crypto uh, accomplish as many things or they lose traction so why don't you kind of you know give us you know just what has been the secret to your success in the industry and kind of has allowed you to thrive and continue to keep building that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm always, you know, it's interesting because as you move through phases of company development as a startup, you know, there's a lot of throw spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks very early on, right? You know, you're in that customer discovery and, mark, you know, really market discovery mode. Um, 
And there's a couple of really danger points that you have to always watch out for, especially in an industry that's filled with incredibly intelligent, creative people. It's the shiny new object syndrome. Squirrel. <laughs> NFT. <Right? laughs> Whatever, right? Whatever, right? You know, it's like board ape. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, cool, you know. But, um, you know, staying very narrowly linear focused around a fundamental hypothesis and solve. And then, you know, this goes back to when I mentored startups is in the accelerator. I like, you only actually fail when you quit. So reach down, you know, you know, my wife's a, a trainer, right? And she always is screaming at me because I'm her worst client ever. You know, I'm like old and decrepit and out of shape, drink too much coffee and, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, she's like, when you feel that burn, you're only at 40%. You've got 60% to go. Don't quit. So, um, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, and then personally success is I collect people, man. You know, I surround myself, you know, I'm, I'm a student of other people and, you know, human beings. And I really, I love to learn, you know, just, I'm a, I'm a, just a natural academic, you know, curiosity and, you know, you really, you, you can only read, you know, so much, you actually have to get out and interact with folks. And, you know, I really, I, I, I collect smart people, you know, <laughs> like that's, you know, I've got childhood friends, you know, that I'm thankfully, you know, because of social media, we live in an era where we can reconnect with all of those people that were really cool in our life that, you know, we, you know, can continue to maintain that connection with. And, um, and I got a big network, you know, I got a giant network. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think that um, you just surround yourself. With, you know, I, I want to be the dumbest guy in a room, man. I mean, that's literally it. If I'm the smartest guy in every room, then I'm in the wrong damn rooms. I know that's cliche, but it's oh so true. You know, like yep. I want to be pushed by people and challenged by people. And I feel, you know, it's funny because uh, my chief operating officer, co-founder uh, Slater, Rob Slater, you know, he's a, comes out of the military. You know, he's a military officer, senior officer in the Air Force at Air Force Research Laboratory. And, um, you know, so you got like a literally lieutenant colonel major level you know, guy that's, you know, very comfortable screaming and hollering and being an asshole. Right. And I affectionately dubbed him my Sergeant at arms. Right. And, you know, Slater military cut jaw, you know, like literally, you know, this is Slater, like really mad and upset. This is Slater really elated and happy. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, and so you need that level of sort of even internal intimidation. Like, Oh, I've got a responsibility to my team. And last thing I want Slater, like chewing my ass off because I'm somehow or another dropping the ball on something. So, Team dynamics is a big one too. You know, it's like literally if you're forming a company or a project, you know, become a master at learning how to build a baseball team and read the great coaches. So over the last few years, uh, your success basically meant that you've created the right partnerships, put together the right team, stayed away from those shiny objects and kept focus. And top of all that, I think what we heard is, you know, you're, you're doing it in the compliance regulatory fashion and going in the right direction yeah. under law. Under the radar, largely, right? Yeah. You don't you don't have to go out there and be you know neon sign headline seeking. I mean, it certainly helps when you're trying to raise a bunch of institutional capital. But as we've seen, a lot of projects that have created a lot of noise has ended up with an awful <laughs> lot of crater too. So, you know, it's like you know, just go do your you know, just go build. You know, if you're out there building, you don't have anything to worry about, right? Competition or whatever. People will eventually learn what you're doing and find out about it. Do quality work. You know, always you know high touch treat people well, man. It's like I teach my kids. If I'm a, you know, like literally if I only accomplish two things out of being a dad, right? Number one, understand the fundamental nature of consequence period in everything. And number two, don't be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard these days. That's hard to do these days, huh? <laughs> culture glamorizes asshole culture, right? You know, it's like, yeah. So Anyway, well, that was good. And I, you know, our final question we always ask on this show, and maybe it piggybacks off that one a little bit, but uh, the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth. 
Um, understanding balance sheet wealth versus income cash, you know, wealth, you know, really understanding the long tail of compounding balance sheet equity value, making investments in things that appreciate over time. Um, you know, I'm pretty austere, you know, I don't live a, I'm pretty low maintenance and it's great. Like finally coming into my own, in my own career, you know, I'm 50 years old. I'm not ostentatious <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. I'm too old, you know, like, Hey, check out that Aventador. And I'm like, Oh, it's nice, but I'm not getting you know, like, and nice Audi, you know, or whatever Lexus is fine for, you know, I don't, I don't have that emotional. Need. It's always, it's always available to rent. Right. I mean, you can always rent it and get rid of it. If you need to get it out, if you need yeah. it, if you need to do it, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, I, but yeah, I mean, that's basically it is, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, keep your overhead low too. You know, it gives you a lot of flexibility. I'm not saying you got to go be, you know, the hermit in the woods, but you know, debt and overhead is, you know, I don't care what people say. Oh yeah. It's, okay, these are the things that drive me towards success. I'm like, yeah, you got the Buffett side of the equation too, though. You know, that's... For every person, it's uh, there's certain levels that best works with them, right? And some people can think and work more clearly with less debt, you know, and it allows them to make certain moves that they might not otherwise make. That's exactly right. Well, look, I appreciate coming on, Michael. Uh, you know, for our listeners, what's the best way for them to get more info, get a hold of you, check out the company? Yeah. Um, so 10XTS is 10XTS.com. Um, and then uh, you can follow me personally. I'm pretty accessible. Twitter at Michael Hiles, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-L-E-S. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You know, come find me on LinkedIn, the professional networking site. <laughs> Where everyone scams, uh, spams messages. <laughs> right, exactly. But, uh, you know, once again, it's about if you're, your, your hobby is collecting people, that's a good place to do it. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm easy to find well i appreciate coming out today i appreciate uh everything you provided for our, for our listeners right on man i hope it was worth the price that uh, they paid to get it all so you know i appreciate you joe and uh, the work that you're doing for your audience and uh happy to you know avail myself to you anytime thank you